0: Imagine heroes who appear when catastrophe strikes your country, threatening your cultural institutions. Rapid response teams of researchers who can help you save your collections and other data while aid organizations are busy saving lives. Just such a team, thousands strong, all ages and across the globe, has formed to support Ukrainian libraries, archives and museums, in the wake of the Russian invasion.
1: Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith.
0: I'm your host, Ellen Dornan.
1: On this program, we're joined by Anna Kios and Quinn Dombrowski, two of the founders of SUCHO, Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. Anna is head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University. Quinn is the academic technology specialist in the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages, and in the library at Stanford University.
0: Thank you both so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk about the work that you're doing. Could we just start with a quick overview of what Sucho is, what the goals of the project are?
2: Our main goal is to identify and archive as many at-risk sites that we can that are relevant to cultural heritage in the Ukraine. And we're doing this with a toolbox of technology. And of course, we have over a thousand volunteers that are helping us work on this large project.
1: Now, Anna, by sites, you mean websites?
2: Yeah, and it's websites, so that can be a website like a library website, for example, a public library. It can be a museum website that has images of artifacts, paintings, different types of materials that they collect and house in their institution.
3: As time has gone on, we've expanded beyond just libraries, archives, and museums as people usually think of them to include places where people engage with cultural heritage in their everyday lives before the war so things like after-school programs for children, where they're learning about the history of Ukraine, learning Ukrainian language, learning about nature, children's libraries where they're publishing their young patrons' poems, even things like fan fiction sites that are you know, avenues of expression for everyday people. All of those are in scope for what we're working on.
0: I'm curious, you're two months in, right? So right back at the
2: beginning of March
0: 2022, how is this all forming?
3: There
2: were a few different people thinking about this kind of simultaneously. One of the things that I was doing at the end of February when the invasion occurred was planning for a music library conference. So as a music librarian, I also lead a lot of digital humanities type of initiatives in my professional organization and my professional work. And so one of the things that I thought I could do immediately was bring together a group of music librarians through a virtual workshop to do data rescue of mainly digital collections of music materials in Ukraine. And I put that out on Twitter and then basically started communicating with different people, Quinn, Sebastian, and so forth. And Sebastian was also thinking about this more broadly from a cultural heritage perspective. And Quinn was also interested in moving along much more quickly than I had originally anticipated. So we kind of got together. And within a few days, we just said, what can we do? And we formed Sucho and we started the ball rolling.
3: We launched it March 1st, making the website as we were writing the tutorials, as we were coming up with a plan, as we were creating a new Slack instance. And within the first day, we had 400 people sign up to volunteer.
1: Can I just circle back for a second? Because I think the notion of data rescue in these sorts of conflicts is so important. What makes these particular data resources at risk? I mean, is this because it's not hosted, say, at Amazon Web Services? They have their own servers in the basement. Why is it at risk to begin with?
3: Technically, there's a couple different reasons. Our initial focus was on servers that were physically hosted in Ukraine. It's easy for people to forget, you know, since the internet seems to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time, that at the end of the day, it's physical things. There's a computer somewhere, and that computer needs power, and it needs cooling, and it needs a cable to connect it to the internet, and all of those things can be disrupted in the war, you know, just like anything else. So initially, we were actually checking all the URLs to see if their IP address resolved to somewhere in Ukraine, and then prioritizing those first and not worrying about the things hosted abroad. But then as the war went on, we realized that things hosted abroad are potentially at just as much risk, because even if the physical server isn't at risk of destruction, you have to keep paying And paying for servers hosted abroad is probably not the top priority of refugees right now. So we then started picking up these other sites as well to ensure that they are also kept safe. Broadly speaking, too, um, statements from the Kremlin have really driven home the fact that this war is fundamentally about cultural heritage and about who gets to say that they're a country and who gets to say that they have their own language and their own culture and the Russian government's intention to deny that to Ukrainians. On one hand, there are other groups that are working on archiving government sites, archiving news sites, but we feel like in this war in particular, um, perhaps more than in some other situations, the role of cultural heritage really is paramount.
0: So how do you go about the business of organizing a data rescue and then conducting data rescue with, you said, over a thousand volunteers? I mean, are you only
2: working with people who can breed what they're rescuing? So, I will say that personally, and I know Quinn as well, we've been working with digital humanities projects and have project management experience, which I think is really key here, too. While we do have over 1,300 volunteers, we have a core group of just a couple hundred that have been actively working daily for the last two months. So that makes it somewhat easier because we've kind of gotten to know each other. We've been working day in, day out on Slack. So we communicate via Slack. We talk through problems. Sometimes we'll schedule Zoom meetings with different groups working on a similar task to get everybody on the same page. We create lots of documentation to make sure that we all understand what it is we're doing. And we're constantly iterating. For example, we have a metadata channel where we're curating metadata for contents and items that have been uploaded into the internet archive. And so we're talking through standards and we're talking through like, okay, well, what do the people who are scraping the websites need to know about which metadata to capture so that we can then accurately curate it on our end? So there's all these conversations going on every day. We have other team leads within these task groups that are also kind of keeping an eye on, okay, what's happening and are making sure that tasks are getting done. And if people get stuck, they get help and so forth.
3: To the question about volunteers, this is one of those funny moments that for myself, feels like it brings together all the things that I've ever worked on, the digital humanities, but also the fact that I have a bachelor's and master's in Slavic linguistics, and I took a, you know, a year of Ukrainian, and I took old East Slavic, and this is sort of one of these obscure parts of my background that, that suddenly becomes very relevant. But I would say we have a minority of people who can read Cyrillic or knew anything about Slavic languages to speak of. Before this event, there were some people who had family heritage in the area, but may not have retained the language and people are learning some basic Cyrillic. People are learning to you know, navigate around these sites without the language knowledge. And we sort of have taken the people who have those language skills and sort of put them to work in tasks where that really matters. So things like quality control, making sure that sites are actually cultural heritage sites and not air conditioner vendors and things like that. We have everything from retirees who want to put their time to use, literally to my eight-year-old Sam, who's been archiving sites and copying and pasting out of the spreadsheet and just getting really excited about this project. It spans all the time zones, 24 hours a day we can work, all the ages, all the language knowledge that you can imagine.
1: Have there been any um, known failures yet where you didn't get to archive or scrape a resource and then it went down and it was too late?
3: Lots. We've got a list. One of the interesting things about this project is that when things go down, I mean, it sounds very final, but what we've discovered is that at any given moment, um, you know, between 14 to 20% of the links on our list are down. And they may come back, and they may not. We just don't know. On days when the internet connectivity of the country is the equivalent of sunny weather, we have people go through our down list and see if there are any that are back. But there are definitely some that have been down and have not come back.
2: What about ones that you saved in the nick of time? Yeah. The state archives of Harki, for example, our third coordinator, Sebastian, was able to archive it before it went down. And that was literally in the nick of time. And it was just amazing that he was able to do that. But there's also been sites where we have challenges in terms of being able to crawl them or archive as much as we would like. Sometimes there are just these blocks or they have required credentials, right? So you can't get in because you don't have the credentials or there's some kind of an outdated database that makes it really difficult to write a program or a script that can allow you to scrape that content. So there are also those technical or technological challenges that we have people trying to work through and figure out like how can we get in so we can actually take that content and archive it.
0: Are there people on the ground in Ukraine that are able to support this effort on their end or able to
3: request that their data be put on your list? We have seen some of that. There there was one morning that I woke up to an email from a sysadmin in Kyiv who had seen his website on our list of sites that had been down, and he had been able to get it back up and, and asked us to archive it as soon as we could to ensure that there was a copy of it. And so we were able to do that successfully. It really has been a challenge to get in touch and stay in touch with people on the ground there, as you can imagine. As the shape of the war evolves, we've been able to do a little bit more of that. And recently, we've started a new sub-project to try to support people who are still physically have access to their archives and libraries to digitize materials in those collections and put those materials online as a fundraising effort.
1: It's good you brought that up, Quinn, because I wanted to come back to something that you said at the beginning, you had said that you were identifying cultural heritage resources, like after-school programs and this kind of thing. And so by that, you mean things that aren't already digitized, and so that's become part of the effort, too, because the physical resources might be in danger.
3: Yeah. On one hand, we have you know a branch of work that's focused on people digitizing their physical collections and you're getting scans of documents and things like that. And those are important, that represents a whole lot of work and time and care that people have put into building these collections. But at the same time, it's also important to try to capture the catalogs of what their holdings were, whether or not we have digital copies of those things. There's reason to think that, in the future, those might be uh, you know really valuable records in order to potentially prosecute war crimes as there are rules around protection of cultural heritage and if things end up being looted or destroyed. Being able to have evidence that these belong to a certain institution will be useful. But then on top of that, there's born digital cultural heritage. And that's where some of these after-school programs and children's libraries come in where there are photos of Christmas parties. There are photos of children's graduations and artwork and celebrations. There's World Embroidery Day where all the children showed up in their embroidered shirts. And these are photos that were probably taken on someone's cell phone and uploaded to the website. And there's not not like a physical photo out there to represent that. And the only thing that exists is the digital. And that needs to be taken care of as much as anything else.
1: Or like someone that's got a drawer full of flash drives with 10 years of classroom pictures and that kind of thing.
3: I'm curious
0: where you're rescuing the data to. I've been following your press reports across the globe, and it sounds like you've scraped terabytes of data already. So where is this being hosted? And is it something that people
2: can go look at? So in the beginning of this project, we were also getting information and finding items such as books that maybe were image files or text that were PDFs, et cetera, on these websites and uploading them to the Internet Archive. And we have a collection there for Sucho where we could then create metadata about the item, where it came from, which website, which institution, and so forth. So those are actually visible. If you go to archive.org and look up the Sucho collection, you can see it there. And those are still being actively curated, so there's some content in there that may not make full sense based on the metadata that was originally imported, but we have a group of folks working on that to clean it up. And then the other side of it, and maybe, Quinn, you can talk a little bit about the other storage solution that we have.
3: So we're using a couple different methods of archiving these sites. One of them, as Anna described, is making sure that they're captured in the Wayback Machine of the Internet Archive. But one of the early experiences that was really striking for us in terms of the value of a distributed solution is there was a power outage at the Internet Archive in the early days of the project. And like the, the irony of you know trying to get things out of a country with power outages to a place that's impacted by a power outage. Usually, you know, you would go get a coffee, go get lunch, come back in the afternoon, and keep working. like these things happen, not a big deal. but especially in the early stages of the project, you know every hour counts, and the war won't pause while the local power company gets this act together. We've also been having volunteers uh, use the open source web recorder software on their own computers. We now have a cloud instance. Easy as filling out a web form to archive sites. We have browser-based plugins for capturing complex websites. And so all of those create archive files that are uploaded to our servers, uh, which are currently being run on Amazon Web Services. Then they go to quality control and we have a few of those available for public viewing. There's a list on our website, but that's a part of it that we kind of need to catch up on. There's been a lot of things and, and getting them all the way through to that final publicly facing side of the process has been challenging given the volume that we have. We have over 30 terabytes of data at this point. So you can imagine.
1: What a remarkable and important effort that, like you said, is not the first thing that you're thinking about when you're running out of your city that's under attack. Thank you both so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: And if you would like more information about this effort at Data Rescue, you can visit the website sucho.org. That's S. U-C-H-O .org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Clark. So you can find me just sitting at my crossroads waiting for the light to change.